But the good thing the Lord does take us just as we are, isn't it? Because we never get good enough to, for him to even consider taking us in. Stephanie, I appreciate your testimony and song because I know what you've been going through the last year and I appreciate those words. Alright, Confession Brings Freedom is our title of our message today. John 3.16 reveals our sinfulness and that only Christ can deliver us from that. We shared that with the group last night that I believe the most important word in that verse is for that Jesus gave and, we, and we've examined that before we won't do it again but he gave to come and to deliver me from my sin to make reconciliation possible with God but when we are reconciled with him this strips away my pride hinders me and my when I want to hang on to my sin it just makes me defensive and hinders me from seeing the truth and looking at myself honestly I'm convinced one reason I don't grow more in the Lord and you struggle with it too that I don't grow better because I don't really want to see myself for what I really am I have painted a picture on mine of who I am and what I want to be in fact the Bible speaks of that somewhat looking in a mirror when we use the Bible as a mirror, we're going to see our faults. And we should be looking at the Bible with that in mind. Because when we look and see ourselves for what we are, now we can make amends with God and seek reconciliation. So we need to do a self-examination. So let's begin by turning to Psalm 139 and look at verses 23 and 24. David knew what it was. David was a great king. He was a godly man. But he also, as we know, made some major mistakes. He committed adultery. And then he made it possible for that husband to be killed in battle. I don't. Uh, that just shows how low we can go even as a believer, doesn't it? He sent in his own hand his demise. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what the commander must have thought when he read this, put Joab in the, high, in the hottest battle and back away and let him be killed. Can you imagine doing that to one of your soldiers? I would have had trouble, I think, following through with that command, but it was done. By God's design, David needed to see where he was spiritually. It wasn't good. It wasn't a pretty picture. So we find in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Why do we have to ask God to search our heart? Shouldn't we know it better than anybody because it's our heart? Not really because we'd like to deceive ourselves for what we're looking at. So we need God's help. And David says, try me. It's like one of those things, God give me patience. He's going to send trials. When you say, try me, Lord, he's going to do it. Know my anxieties. When's the last time you or I ever prayed this prayer? And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. When we lived in Huttonville, one of our state prisons is there. And it's kind of had of an indirect effect on the people's mentality in that community. Because I would visit folks in their homes, I would talk to them about their Lord, their need for the Savior, and say, Well, I'm not bad. I said, Why would you say that? And there's a number of people that say, well, I'm not in the big house. And the big house is a local term for the prison. Those are the ones that need salvation because they're really bad. What have they have done? They have categorized their sin. I'm not really, really bad. 
I'm pretty good and pretty moral, so I'm okay. What they really were saying is, I think I got the scales tipped. But those guys there, no, their they're scales are the other way. They need help. Is it possible for us as Christians to have that same mentality to some degree? I believe it is. And the only thing that's going to remove that is say, God, search me. When we pray that prayer, we better be honest and, and really mean it because God's going to do it. And the benefit will come from that. We will be reconciled with God. So we must be willing to actively invite God to search our heart. Now, what's our heart? I'm simple. I got a, a heart, kind of like a kid, you know, uh, a little kid. You don't, when you talk to a little child about receiving Jesus Christ in your heart, you don't use the word heart. Because what's going through the little kid's heart? Yeah. How does Jesus get in my heart? How, he's too big. He can't fit in there. I've had little kids say that. So I don't use that word anymore when I'm talking to a, a little child. But man, me, I'm kind of simple that way too. What's it mean to search my heart? I don't want him to do a, in fact, if you haven't heard, Pat's got to go in for a bypass sometime, hopefully this week, right? We want this as soon as possible. So be praying about that, that they can get in soon. And it's very, very tricky. Normally when they do a bypass, they stop the heart. They can't stop Pat's. They have to do it while his heart is beating. So it's going to be tricky. And Lord willing, it's going to come this week. So let's be praying about that, all right? But that's why I'm thinking about Pat's heart there. But that's not the heart that we're talking about here, is it? Now, in your notes, I, I would suggest you put this word there. Search my motives. What motivates us to do what we do? Why did you all go to bed last night? What was your motivation? Fatigue. Tired. Why did you get up this morning and eat? Hunger. You know? Why did you look in the mirror? Oh, this needs to be fixed. <laughs> There's a motivation there, right? There's a motive behind everything we do. And when you boil it all down, there's only two motives that exist. I either do it for God or I do it for me. Right? And when I do it for me, I'm in trouble. And so are you. When I do it for him, life's going to be good. Now, it doesn't mean life's going to be easy. But it's going to be good. That's what he says here. David knew he blew it. God, I need you to search my... What did I do? How did I... I wonder if David asked that question. He had to have asked it. God, how did I get here? I got 11 wives. Why did I need another one? Why did I take one of my men's wives and then have him murdered? Until he asked that question, over a year later, he didn't repent. And you read Psalm 51 that was read this morning. David said for that year his bones dried up. He was empty inside. He knew what he did and it troubled him. And said should. Sin should trouble us. If it doesn't trouble us either we're not saved or we are spiritually in deep trouble. So the definition of sin. This is actually an archery term. It means missing the mark. Now, it was common in that day, and we shared an archery demonstration last night and how they made arrows. We're not going to go into that this morning, but these guys would shoot arrows 200 yards. And, all they, and they had these big bales, and, and if they missed it, the guy that was the spotter would simply yell back, Sin! You missed the mark. When you and I sin, we miss the mark. We miss the word of God. We didn't hit the mark that God wanted us to. Let's turn to 1 John 3, verse 4.
Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Pretty simple definition, isn't it? The law is the word of God. God didn't want us to miss what was, because if it wasn't for this book, it wasn't for the Ten Commandments, we would excuse more sins than we already do. But since it's written in black and white, there's no denying what sin is. And every one of us are sinners. Sin is against people, or when we sin against people, it's also sin against God. Because he teaches us and enables us to love one another. In fact, we, we need to read this often, and I don't think we read it enough. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Some, people, some of you will realize it or know this is the love chapter. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Only against, unless it's my enemy. Doesn't say that, does it? So it doesn't matter who the human being is, no matter what they've done to us, or what they could potentially do to us, we still have to treat them in kindness and without rude and be patient with them. In fact, the Bible even goes so far as to say, if your enemy hungers, do what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. When was the last time your enemy, you gave him something? Let me give an example of one that did. And one of our deacons in our church in Huttonsville, uh, he wasn't a mason. And he let it be known, because he, he was urged to become a mason on, on numerous occasions. But he said, I can't. He said, it's, not, it's contrary to scripture. He worked in a school. Most of the teachers were masons. And they tried to heckle him all the time. He was a janitor in the church, or in the school. Some of those masons would deliberately make a mess. And I won't go into details as to what kind of mess he made. But it was in the bathroom, so you can use your example. You can use your imagination. And you probably won't be too far from it. He could never really prove who it was, but he had a pretty good idea. You know what he would do? He'd bring them in a pie and sit on their desk. And you say, hey, just thinking of you today, thought you might enjoy a pie. That just irritated him so bad. Because they wanted to make him mad and, and, and make him show what they were like, and he wouldn't do it. He always had a good word for them. He always was a good friend to them. He was showing love. Now, how could he do that? Because he had an awesome love for God. Numbers, chapter 5. Six and seven. Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin, that man committeth unfaithfulness against the Lord. And that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. So when we are sinning against each other, it's not just against us. It's not between us, is it? It also is against him. And so it's double trouble for us when we think, all oh, this is just between us. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. Because now we're disobeying God as well. Then there's the sin of omission. James says, if he who sees to do something good and don't do it, it's sin. It's very easy to ignore, especially those who don't like us very well. You want to ignore them. But James says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. See, we don't need to be looking at the person uh, in fact, I was talking to uh, uh, my doctor this week. I had to go see him, and he was chatty this time. He must, in fact, he got the nurses mad because 
I never had this happen. The doctor came into the waiting room and got me. It's never that. Doctor, the nurse always calls you and sits you in there, and he called me in there, and he started doing the examination, and, and I didn't even get the BP done, all that, you know, the preliminaries, they go through all that kind of stuff, and, and he sat there and just chatted, and found out he was a Presbyterian, and got talking about things going on in the church, and some of the false teachings, and all that kind of stuff, and he's trying to remain neutral, he didn't want to offend anything, or anybody in the room, uh, but the bottom line was, the church is messed up today. I said, yep, sure is. You know, the church doesn't want to do the right thing anymore. And I said, you're right. And uh, that's why we need to get back to the Word of God. But uh, to him to do it not, or him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. He said, the church isn't doing that anymore. Because their focus is off of him. But pride encourages denial, rationalization, Ignoring, minimizing, blame shifting, and comparison. By word comparison, I mean this. Like those people in Huttonsville, they're comparing themselves to the prisoners. I'm not so bad. Who do we need to compare ourselves to? Jesus Christ. Where does that leave us? We're all in trouble. <laughs> Nobody can ever come close to even matching up. And 1 John 1, 8 makes it very clear. And we need to look at this verse. You need to underline it. You need to circle it. You need to be aware of it as a reminder to all of us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the world is constantly trying to redefine sin. How many sins do we call out there are diseases? Or alternate lifestyles? Or it's in the genes? That part are right. Because we're born sinners. <laughs> It's in the genes. And you and I better believe that we are capable of any sin on this planet. And say, so, oh, I could never do that. Yeah, we can. We're capable of every sin that's on this planet. So what do we do if we're doing these things? Well, we ask God to reveal our heart. What's motivating me? Get into the Word and find the truth. Hebrews 4.12 As I shared with our group last night, we encourage them that we here at Galilean Baptist Church believe the Word of God can change lives. This is all we use. We don't use any psychology, psychiatry. We use the Word of God. It's powerful. And so we share with them, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of what? Thoughts and intents of the heart. If you have any questions about your motivations, you have any questions about your values, if you have any questions about your goals... The only way to get it straightened out is to get into the book. God, reveal to me where my values are wrong, my goals are wrong, and help me straighten it out. And he will do that. Guaranteed. That's a, how important the Word of God is to us. That's why you and I, even though we're in a maybe a... a time in our life when things are not really bad. There's nothing really going on and we're kind of, God's giving us a, a breather, you might say. That's no time to back away from the Word of God. I look at it this way. Get to know this book, the God of this book, and the content of the book because something's coming. I call it preventative maintenance. Too many times we take our car into the shop after it's broke. Right? Now sometimes they'll break even though we do preventive maintenance, but we can sure prevent some of it if we take them in and get those tires changed before they go bald and, and get and that's of course the purpose of a, a car inspection, trying to head some of that stuff off. But spiritually we've got to do the same thing. Study the word. Seek out wise counsel, Proverbs twelve fifteen. We are blessed here in this church with men and women that know the word well. Deacons and their wives that know the word well. That's why we assign you to a deacon and his, his wife so that if you need counsel, because obviously I can't do it all. There, there's about 30 families that attend this church. 
And it will continue to grow, and I can't do it. So we have deacons that you can go to and say, Pastor, or deacon, I got, a, I got something I need help with. And they'll help you search it out. They'll help you apply the truth. Seek wise counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Even your pastor needs counsel. I thank God for men he's put in my life that when I'm struggling with something, I can call him on the phone and say, listen, I need to, I need to pick your brain a little bit. I want to make sure I'm going the right direction on this thing. I want to make sure I'm doing this right. We all need it. There's nobody above it. And those men actually have men they go to as well. There's always this, I guess it's a circle you might say. But we might discover, as we ask God to search our hearts, we might discover some things. Let's go to James. Chapter 3. I know this passage is troublesome for all of us, because we have all used poor speech. Verses 5 and 6, we'll start there. You can look at that whole chapter. It talks about the tongue and how we use it. But we'll start at 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. I used to be a uh, firefighter in Pennsylvania when I was in Bible college. They'd call us up and they'd have this brush fire. Just a little bit of a fire can set on. And you've seen the California. I never fought one of those California ones. Miles and miles of terrain burned up. All from a little flicker. In fact, I remember one. It was extremely dry that summer. To the point where actually our creek where we got our water from the town dried up. And somebody come flying into the fire station. I don't even know why I was there, but it was. Just, I just saw somebody flick out a cigarette but. At the bottom of the hill, right there in that turn, and it immediately lit, lit the leaves on fire. And I knew that terrain because I hunted in there, and I knew if that fire ever got into that holler, we wouldn't stop until it got to Pocahontas County. So I got our guys, and we got over there, and, and the fire had already gone two or three hundred yards, and it was heading for that holler. And when it gets in those hollers, it's like a wind tunnel. It just picks it up and goes. I said, guys, ignore all this little stuff right here, and you get to that head of that fire, and you stop it right there, and then we'll work it back. Because if that thing gets up in there, we're done. We're going to need everybody in the state to come and fight this fire. So they listened to what they were doing. They went up there, and we stopped that fire from getting anywhere. And finally, when the federal government got, because that's federal property, state property, they came in there and said, who put this fire out? I said, we did. Well, how'd you know what to do? And I said, we know how fire works. We know where it's going. <laughs> and he said, do you have any equipment? I said, no. He said, you will tomorrow. And they give us like thousands of dollars worth of equipment because we knew what to do with it. <laughs> but fire, you know what it can do. Just a little bit of fire can take off and do serious damage. How, how much damage can we do with our tongue? That's what this is talking about. Even so the tongue, a little member. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. It can do serious, serious damage. We need to be careful how we use our tongues. In fact, we'll look at another passage in a little bit. It's only to be used to edify. If we can't edify someone, then keep your mouth quiet. Proverbs 12, 13, 12 18. Reckless words can hurt. I might say this, if you're on the receiving end of it, don't let those words trouble you. If they're true, do something about it. If they're not, does it really matter? But sometimes we want to take those things so personally, and it really doesn't matter. Because who knows the truth? He's the only one that really matters. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is no one who speaks like the piercing words of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. I have seen in homes where the language is at the top of the lungs, they're calling each other's names, things are not good, and you know what their health is like also? It is poor. 
because your body can only take just so much anxiety for so long and it will begin to break the body down. So if you want better health at home, keep talking nice to each other. <laughs> it will have an effect, a calming effect on the body. That's what God's Word is saying. Philippians 2.14 This is a very revealing passage as well for me. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, if I'm complaining, why am I complaining? Something's not going my way. Now, you ever been there? Surely no complainers here, right? We, we got a handle on this. When we get in that complaining mode, it's time for us to stop and say, okay, God, what's going on? Is this about me or is this about you? Now, life's not going to be perfect. There's always going to be something that's not going to go well. And sometimes things are not going to go Christ's way either. But murmuring in this case is, it's about me. It's not about him. And God says, stop it. It's not worth it. Proverbs 24, 28 talks about a half-truth. Again, we don't do that, do we? We don't exaggerate the truth any or leave something out or, you know. We got a truth that we want to convey and so we tell our wives what we want them to hear so they get this picture in their mind so things will go my way. Yep, done it. But that's, Lord says that's not a healthy place to be. Verse 28. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? See, the purpose, we call that a little white lie. <laughs> but there is no such thing. If it's not the straight truth, it's a lie. God says do not deceive the truth. Proverbs 16, 28 talks about gossip. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisper separates the best of friends. Slander, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. We have a list of sins here in this passage, and right in the middle of it is slander. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Verse 3 through 5. We're not to be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, but one who rules his own house. And that's not the passage. I'm in I'm First Timothy. No wonder we're not looking right. Here we go. Unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. All those really nasty sins and right in the middle of it is a slander. So how, how serious is slander? <laughs> it's sin. And God considers it sin. And there's no easy way around it. But let's look Ephesians 4. This helps us get our tongue where it needs to be. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Now, the first thing that would come to my mind when thinking corrupt, I'm thinking about cuss words, swear words, dirty stories, that kind of thing. Those things are corrupt. But I think it goes farther than that. Our tone of voice. Our body language. Innuendos. Things like that. But what is good for necessary edification? In fact, when it comes to our day... When the Lord takes us home, will we be noted for how we used our tongue to edify and encourage people? Praise the Lord for Joyce. That was what she was known for. That was her spiritual gift, edification, encouragement. You never, ever heard anything out of her mouth that was not encouraging and edifying. Praise the Lord. She showed us how to that to be done. We need to be doing the same. Why? Because this is what imparts grace to the hearers. What's grace? Grace is the divine ability to do something we can't do on our own. Folks, 
We need all the help we can get. And you and I are to help each other with the speech that we use towards each other. So we need to be edifying and encouraging and use our tongues with the, with the word of God behind it to help those who are struggling. I, I made a mistake once and it was, I, it just happened so quick I didn't even realize what I did. But uh, I had a deacon one day that was struggling with something. And I looked up to him as a, as a very, very godly man and, and saw that he never struggled with anything. But he was sharing with me one day and I made some kind of flippant, off-the-cuff comment about, oh, that's nothing for you to be excited about. That was not with grace. And I said, please forgive me. That, was, that did not come out the way that should have. And he said, yeah, that immediately it kind of like a stabbed him in the heart that I was thinking that he could never have any problems. Our words need to be for grace and encouraging. We need to seek control. <coughs> we need to not seek control by manipulating others. First Peter. Again, we've talked about this a little bit. Here's a passage that will uh, warn us about that. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Verse 2 of chapter 5, 1 Peter. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who entrusted, but by an example of the flock. What's this passage saying here? This is a warning to the pastors not to be manipulative. Those who are in leadership, don't manipulate. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. We can do the same things on our own. And how do we manipulate? Oh, our anger. We, we, we flash out. Our, and sometimes it's not even a, a blow up. Sometimes we go in our corner and we get cold. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm just going to ignore you. Our silence. There's a lot of ways we can manipulate. You know what they are. <laughs> I'm sure you use them. We all do. Or we can break our word without a valid reason because we want to manipulate. We want to kind of turn things our way. And we don't have time to look at Matthew chapter 5. You can look at that on your own. But then we might be disrespectful of authority. In Romans 13, again, we're not going to turn there because it's a longer passage, but that passage talks about we, we need to honor our politicians and our, our rulers, and that's hard to do sometimes when they're doing things that are wrong. I mean, if we took a survey right here, how many really respect our politicians in Washington? <laughs> I don't think it would be very high. On a scale of 1 to 100, um, that could be very high. <laughs> we know it's not high, but let me ask you this. How much time do we spend praying for these people? That they'll make the right decisions. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a great deal of respect for our president, but I pray for him often. I pray for his salvation. Wouldn't it be awesome if he would get saved and say, listen, we need to go to the Word of God. Do you think that's possible? I believe it is possible. I pray for that. Is it going to happen? I have no clue. But one thing's for certain, I can't expect it to happen if I'm not praying for it. Our politicians need that. Of course, there is a limit. Acts 5.29 says we need to obey God rather than men. So if our government and our officials tell us to do something that's sinful, we can say, no, I'm not going to go there. God's word says this is what I must do. So there is a limit. We can disrespect each other. And the way we treat each other, we talked about that. There's just some things that uh, building on what we've been talking about here. Matthew 7.12 says, therefore, whatever you... Whatever you want men to do to you, you do also to them. Because So if you're not treating people like you want to be seen, you're disrespecting them. How do you want to be treated? The Bible's very clear. Treat people the same way you want to be treated. If not, it's disrespect. So that should be easy. You shouldn't have to ask, how do I need to treat this person? Well, how would I want to be treated? Problem solved. Do it. 
We can serve sin. Again, we're not going to go to Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 20, because that's just a list of sins. Lots of sins that are out there. We can serve those sins. Even as Christians. I'm sure you have seen Christians get themselves into really hot water with sin. And 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses that. Chapter 5, very specifically. There's one of you men that is sleeping with your mother-in-law and bragging about it. How foolish can you be? But they were believers. He was writing to believers. Then there's a fear of man. And I don't know where you're at on that, but do you ever fear man? Now, I'm not talking about he's bigger than me. He might pound me to a pulp. <laughs> not that kind. There's guys out there that could do that, no doubt. But probably most of us are not in that position. But the fear of man brings a snare. I'm not going to do this because he won't be my friend anymore. Or I'm going to do this because I want his friendship. I might not get the friendship. Because how many of us really want to be liked by everybody? Yeah, we all do. But in reality, we're not going to be liked by everybody. There's some of us that got personalities that just don't match. Of course, that's no excuse, is it? In fact, if you look at your marriages, most of the time, marriages opposites attract and they complement and complete each other and you can make a marriage work. <laughs> In fact, there's a bigger marriage even than that, isn't there? Between us and God? Is there any bigger matchup that's not going to work and yet God makes it work? But we need to be not fear man, but fear God. Didn't he say that? Don't fear who could take the body, but those who can take the body and soul. This goes along with the respect thing as well. So good things can become bad things when we make it the most important thing. We need to examine those things and ask, ask God for help in that examination. Because we can turn a good thing into a bad thing when we make it the most important thing. What do we got to do? 1 John 1.9, we need to confess our sin. And it simply means, God, I call it what you call it. You've told me in the word that this is sin. When David admitted, I committed adultery, I committed murder, he was on the road to recovery. And until Nathan kind of shook him up a little bit and used a lamb, and he could understand that, couldn't he? Because David was a shepherd. Can you imagine what it must have been like in David's heart when that hit full force? I am the one that stole that lamb. It must have hit him like a ton of bricks. But that was when recovery began to develop in, Paul, in, in David's heart. What, is, what confession is not is saying simply, I'm sorry. Or just forget it. That's where we want to sweep it under the rug and hope the problem will go away. Or it's not your fault. Ten generations ago, this was the pattern starting your family, and so not your fault. That's what the world's trying to do. That's why every time some of these wackos do something stupid, they want to do a family history because, oh, that's why he did it. It's okay. We'll just put you to prison so you don't hurt anybody else, and it's okay. We won't try to deal with it. We won't call it sin. In fact, do we find any place in Scripture God says, if you commit these sins, it's okay if there's a mental illness? It doesn't exist. Now, sure, there's a mental illness that may cause these things, but God says, deal with it. <laughs> If it's murder, execution is in, in store. So there's two types of sin. The first one is heart sin. And that's the one, by heart sin I mean it's still personal. It's in your mind only. You haven't let it get out of your mind yet. Because where does sin start? Here. We think about it. And maybe there's some sins that never get out of our head. But nevertheless, if we're thinking it and it's sin, what do we better call it? Sin. 
And it will hurt our relationship with the Lord if it doesn't hurt anything else. But I believe this. If I think about that sin long enough and I don't deal with it, I'm going to want that sin. And I'm going to get cranky because I don't get it. And so I'll, all of you who are in my world of influence, you might get the wrath of my sin because of what's going on up here. I may not be actually doing anything physically with it, but mentally it's there. Then there's the social sin, but now I'm doing something with it. It's out in the open now. It, somebody's participating with me in it. Or it's, I've got somebody else involved. And usually heart sin will get there eventually if we continue to dwell on it. And we're not constantly confessing that sin. So what do we do? We must address those involved. Matthew 5, if you're praying, you think of something that you've offended someone, stop praying, go take care of it. Avoid excuses, such as, but, but if you hadn't done this, or if only you had done this, or maybe, we're looking for some way to weasel out of it. We need to admit specifically the details of it. 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins. Call it what God calls it. It's sin. Acknowledge the hurt that you have caused. I have done this to you. Please forgive me. Let's reconcile this. That means we seek repentance. Back up one. I missed one. Accept your responsibility. Take responsibility for your own sin. If we don't, what are we going to do? We're going to rationalize it. We're going to put the blame somewhere else. Take responsibility for our own actions. Then seek repentance, which is what? We got to change our behavior. We got to change what we're doing because it's wrong. We need to ask for forgiveness. We've looked at this once before, so I'm just going to state these things very quickly. But when we ask for forgiveness, there's a fourfold promise. Number one, I won't discuss this matter with anybody. That stops gossip. Number two, I won't discuss this with you. That keeps me from bringing up the past. Because what do we do? We just bring the past back to the present and we just keep building the fire. Number three, I won't allow myself to even think about this. When I begin to think about this, I'll just put it out of my mind. That stops bitterness. Because you've been there, haven't you? Somebody's offended you and you just let it brew. And it builds a bitterness and a heart attitude towards that person. The fourth thing is, now we seek forgiveness and we work together on the repentance process. What can we do together to prevent this from happening again? Where do we get these four things from? That's what our Heavenly Father does on my behalf. The repentance process. God's goal is repentance. 2 Timothy chapter 2. God does not want us to continue on in behavior that will hinder our relationship first with Him and then others because of our relationship. As I shared with the folks last night again, I remind them, if you, if you as husband and wife are having a fight, the problem is that you don't love your wife right now or you don't love your husband right now. The problem is you don't love Him right now. So we got to get that straightened out so we can work with each other and straighten out our conflicts. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those things who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Without repentance, we're not going to see the truth and know the truth. And by that know means by experience. I have put this truth to practice. It works. That's where we obey the book, not by how we feel. Because in the forgiveness process, I guarantee you, if it's a really serious situation, you're not going to feel like going and getting forgiveness. But the Bible says you go and do it anyways, and you know what comes after you grant that forgiveness? Peace. But you're going to have to step out and say, okay, God, I'll do it. Because that's what you've commanded me to do. Isaiah 55, 7 gives us the definition of repentance. 
Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. That's God's definition of repentance right there. Underline it, circle it, because we all need it. Forsake the sinful behavior and begin right behavior, and then love God, which will change the way we think. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not, be, be, not, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Basically, what we're trying to do is, God, I want to think like you think. And that's not an issue because it's all right here. All we've got to seek it out and say, okay, God, I'm going to change. It's not about me. It's about you. I'm going to start thinking differently here. What it's not, and I guess I got ahead of myself, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, says we simply feel sad or uncomfortable. It, there's going to be uncomfortableness. That's okay. It's not something to avoid. It's a warning signal. Something's wrong. Let's go fix it. What it's not, it's not a mere apology. That doesn't solve anything. Paul describes the evidence of true repentance. Again, we won't turn to that passage, but... It's sorrow for our sin, disobeying God. And I admit, I wish I felt more sorrow for my sin than I do. Sometimes it troubles me. I, I confess it, but God, where is the sorrow? Where's the mourning that, that I want to have so that will motivate me not to do it again? I, and I see some of you other nodding your head. You're in the same boat I am. You, you feel the same way. So I'm glad I'm not alone on that. <laughs> But I want change. I want to glorify you. And the Corinthians, like I said, they had some problems. And if you don't know anything about the Corinthian city, it was a very, very ungodly city. There was temples there all over the place. And you know what the prime thing was every one of those temples was? They were nothing more than a brothel. A place of prostitution. They had temple prostitutes, and it was a common thing. All the men went there and got their fill of sex by the temple prostitute, and it was okay because it was holy. It was in the temple. That's what these Christians were getting saved out of. And they were abandoning that. They weren't popular in their cities. <laughs> they were holy Joes. But their lives were dramatically changed as a result of it. They drew on God's grace. And, and in Philippians chapter 1, you read there, Paul says, pray. A couple of years ago, I heard a man preach, James McDonald. He's got some good books out there. This was, actually, I heard him at a conference out in Indiana. He had a situation, and I can't remember exactly what it was that was troubling him. But whatever it was, it troubled him so much that he said he literally screamed at the top of his lungs a prayer for 20 minutes. God, I don't want to give up. I want to be faithful. God, I don't want to give up. I want to be faithful. He, he just screamed it at the top of his lungs until the point he was hoarse. But it was an intense prayer that he wanted to mean. And he just didn't let up on it. When was the last time you or I prayed with that intensity? to overcome our sin issues. God, I don't want to give up. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to glorify you. And if that problem that we're struggling with, maybe that's what we need to do. Just get out in the middle of the woods somewhere and screaming out to God until we get a good handle on it with Him. we got to keep our priorities straight. What's our priority? Mark 12, 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Christ made that very clear. That is our priority. Another passage here. Two more and then we'll, we'll close here. But 1 Timothy chapter 4. Study the word. Let me read this passage. And, and you just, I want you to note as I read it, the phrases in here that just put the, the emphasis on the word. 
These things teach and are command and teach. Let no one despise you, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do we get it just from that verse alone? The intensity of the word? Do not, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given you to you by the prophecy with laying the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The only hope you and I have to overcome our sin issues is this book. Now, when you get sick, where do you go? You go to the doctor. What does he give you? Medication. Do you buy that and take it home and sit on the dinner table and say, well, I'll take it when I feel like it. If you don't take that medication, what's going to happen? Your problem physically is going to get worse. But if you trust the doctor and believe it, you'll get better. Here's our pill, folks. Here's our medication. The other thing about this, this problem we have is called sin and it ain't going to go away. This is a pill we got to take every day. And as we do, it will keep harmony between us. Because it's keeping harmony with him. And it's an intense thing. Extremely intense. So we need to practice the Word of God. Don't just read the parables and the good stories. Oh, that was a good story. Closure by be done. You need to read the hard sections that say, this is sin. Our conflict are our opportunities to go to the Word and put the Word to practice. Because the conflict has done what? It's shown us a, a character flaw that needs to be fixed. Denial simply plays into the hands of Satan. Humility makes Satan flee and allows us to draw on God's grace. And I've come to this conclusion on, on grace. If my pride is here, where's my grace level? Here. But if my humility is here, where's my grace level? The key is being humble before God. And then I have the divine ability to do what I can't do on my own. And grace comes from knowing the Word of God. Life can be good. It'll never be perfect, but it can be good when we put our faith and trust in the Word of God and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we're in desperate need of your word. There are conflicts all around us. There's more conflicts even coming that we don't even know about, that, but you do. But help us, Father, to do the preventative maintenance thing and know the word and know it well. So when these things come, we can immediately apply the truth. And should there be conflicts, Father, may we love you enough and love the individual enough to go to them and seek a biblical forgiveness and work on a repentance process together. So we can enjoy our relationship with you and each other. That's your goal for us. And we know it'll work because you said it would. And it's possible through the shed blood of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.